Welcome to the VBAC Link podcast. We are a team of expert doulas trained in supporting VBAC, have had VBACs of our own, and work extensively with VBAC women and their providers. We are here to provide detailed VBAC and cesarean prevention stories and facts in a simple, consolidated format. When we were moms preparing to VBAC, it was stories and information like we will be sharing in this podcast that helped fine-tune our intuition and build confidence in our birth preparations. We hope this does the same for you. To hear more about us and to hear our individual VBAC stories, be sure to check out episodes one, two, and three. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is not meant to replace advice from any other qualified medical professional. Welcome, women of strength. Julie and I are together today, and we are so excited. Like, I'm not kidding you. I am giddy excited, and I know Julie is too, for our guest. Before we announce our special guest, I just wanted to turn the time over to Julie to say a couple things. <laughs> Hi, Megan. Um, Megan's right. It was funny because we were texting this morning and about how excited we are because, guys, like when you meet our guests, you, <laughs> you're going to be excited too. Um, I know we've been giving some teasers and stuff on Instagram, but um, this is just amazing and I told Megan I'm like I am like giddy excited about this and she's like I actually wrote down giddy on the notes and I'm actually like looking at our little show notes right now and she really says we are giddy excited to hear from our guests and so I just want you to know that it's real and we still get excited every time we talk to people so thank you so much for listening to us every once in a while we're going to throw out a special episode they're not going to be regularly scheduled like our Wednesday episodes we're just going to surprise you sometimes with something really exciting. So we asked questions on our Instagram page and on our Facebook page a couple weeks ago, and we asked what questions would you ask a VBAC-supportive OB? And we wanted to hear from you, and guys, you blew us away with your questions. Like some of these questions, me and Megan were saying, wow, I had never really thought to ask that, or, or that's something I wouldn't consider. These are deep questions, guys. Like, these are really awesome. But before we get into that, I just want to put a little, I don't know, like a disclaimer maybe at the beginning is the right thing to say, is every doctor and every OB is going to have different experiences and practice different ways and also to some extent be governed by the hospital that they work under. And so the opinions that we're going to hear today, we are really excited to share with you and they are going to be incredible and awesome. But that doesn't mean that discussion or question answer or anything like that is is specific for you or completely unflexible because you have your care provider who knows your history and you have the intuition that you have been given to help guide your birth choices. So I don't want anyone to take anything that is said today as like law, either one way or the other. And so we just want to let you guys know that, but we are really excited. And so, you know, everyone's unique and has their own circumstances. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, We are so excited to introduce our guest today. I'm going to tell you a little bit about her before we get into the questions and answers. This is Dr. Julia Cormano. She is a board-certified obstetrician and gynecologist 
who provides expert prenatal labor delivery and postpartum care, as well as comprehensive gynecological care. She is part of the maternity team at UC San Diego, and we are so excited to be hearing from her today. Dr. Cormano believes in building strong relationships with her patients and truly listens to their needs. She often works with patients that are interested in vaginal birth after cesarean, which is kind of what led me into discovering her and reaching out to her today. She also helps with turning breech babies into the head down position. Without Dr. Cremona, we are so excited to hear from you. I'm not kidding. We are giddy, like so giddy. So we appreciate you taking your time out of your busy schedule and answering our questions from our listeners. Thank you, Julie and Megan, for inviting me to talk with you and to, and to be on your blog. I'm excited to um, reach more women that are, you know, considering uh, trial of labor and that are it, wanting to learn more and, and be as informed so they can make good decisions for themselves and for their uh, new babies. Um, awesome. I am a board-certified OBGYN, as you said, uh, and I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Services at UC San Diego Health. Uh, my background, I trained, I did my residency at UC Los Angeles, and then I spent three years working in a high-need area with the National Health Service Corps, so I'm familiar with a wide range of patient needs uh, before I found my way to UC San Diego. Um, I've been counseling women regarding trial of labor uh, for VBACs for nine years, and I've had the privilege to care for them during many of their deliveries. I do my utmost to stay abreast of national guidelines um, and recent studies on the topic, but that said, thank you for pointing out to everybody that, uh, you know, it's very important for everyone to make sure they have a discussion with their own healthcare provider um, and have individual questions answered by their own provider, because nothing that I say today is meant to substitute for actual prenatal care <laughs> and individualized uh, trial of labor counseling from your personal healthcare professional. So just, awesome. just want to restate that. So without further ado, let's get started. We have had quite a few responses. We really did. So we're going to try to get to as many as we can today. Um, but don't worry, listeners, if we don't get to your question, we will save it and tuck it tight and try and get answers from maybe another provider or on the blog or somewhere else. We'll try to get those answers, um, questions answered. Um, we have from Zona on our Instagram. She says, did you have any particular experiences that increased your support or awareness of VBACs? In terms of the question, um, any particular experience for me? So for me, I was fortunate enough to train at an institution that's very evidence-based. Um, the, the NIH and ACOG, which is the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, so it's our national professional organization, uh, has supported VBACs since 1980. Um, and... Uh, you know, so it's it's considered a very evidence-based thing to do to encourage women to uh, to be able to trust their own bodies for for uh, delivering vaginally in many situations, even if they've had a prior C-section, um, and sometimes even if they've had two prior C-sections. Um, I the faculty I worked with helped me to feel very comfortable with both the counseling as well as the intrapartum management for women who have had prior cesarean sections. Um, and how to work, you know, collaboratively with patients uh, during the whole process uh, so that they feel both safe uh, and listened to as, as well as make sure they get good care for, for good outcomes for both themselves and for their babies. Uh, I also was lucky enough to, to uh, train um, 
with midwives, and then I have always made it a point uh, as part of my practice that I, I love collaborative environments where I work with midwives. Um, I did so, you know, at the um, uh, when I uh, worked in National Health Service Corps, and then again at, at UC San Diego, I have the pleasure of working with midwives, and I think that uh, it really helps to enforce the idea that um, that labor can be an, ex- an empowering experience for women. Um, you know, but that said, of course, you know, really making good decisions so that women have all the information they need to make the best decision for themselves as to whether or not, you know, laboring after a C-section is the right choice for them. Awesome. Okay, so can I just say I am probably going to be the official president of the Julia Cromano fan club because <laughs> because I just knew I was going to love you and everything you said, like, is... I know Megan and I um, talk. We work a lot with VBAC women and their providers, and and um, and that's like exactly what we would tell somebody. And and I love that you were trained by um, evidence-based care. And I actually love that ACOG just came out with a committee opinion about breech mm-hmm. birth, and it was so exciting. Like we posted it all over our <laughs> social media page because um, it was really exciting for us to hear that. So I'm so glad that you have that background. Not a lot of obstetricians get to take that path and so that's really exciting the next question and we have Ashley who's actually one of our podcast moms she asks what is your best advice for a patient wanting to TOLAC what are the reasons you wouldn't advise a TOLAC Uh, so this these are excellent questions and I think it, it helps to frame the counseling really nicely starting off with these questions so in terms of advice for patients who are considering a TOLAC, I think it's important to understand kind of the three potential outcomes, um, you know, when, when in that subsequent pregnancy after a prior C-section. There is the possibility of a repeat C-section. There is the possibility of a trial of labor that then results in a vaginal delivery. And there is the possibility of a trial of labor that then still ends up resulting in a repeat cesarean section. Based on all of the available data, what we know is that the outcome that has the, the lowest morbidity, both for the mother and for the baby, is a successful vaginal delivery after a trial of labor. That said, the outcome that has the highest morbidity for the mom and for the baby is a uh, trial of labor that ends up resulting in a repeat cesarean section mm-hmm. with a planned repeat cesarean section being kind of in the middle of those two outcomes. So, of course, if we had a crystal ball and we could look at the future and know for each person, are you going to be somebody who we, you know, who successfully has a, a vaginal delivery or who ends up needing the, the cesarean section, then it would be a lot easier to, to help counsel women towards their best possible outcome. But we can't know that. Uh, we can only know... Um, things about the what what the woman's you know clinical scenario is that increase her risk or her chances you know for one of those outcomes versus the other. So that kind of helps frame the decision making you know for for an individual woman. That said, I also think it really really depends on the woman herself. You know that I encourage women to to trust their instincts about you know is laboring, uh, you know, something that is important to me and good for me, and, you know, I, I, that's going to be something that I need as part of my birth story and want as part of my birth story, or is, you know, going with a repeat C-section actually a better choice for me? Sometimes those even supersede, you know, some of the, the things that we'll talk about today. 
Um, in terms of you know things that make somebody a better candidate or you know a better candidate for either a C-section or a better candidate for for trial of labor, um, there's there's kind of um, two groups of things that I would submit to you. There's the things that where I would really strongly say, you know what, this is you know, pretty much considered a contraindication. We would really encourage you for the repeat cesarean section for the safety and health of you and your baby. Those things include a prior history of a classical cesarean section. So that would be if there was an incision that was made on the upper part of the uterus. So not just um, on the low, on the lower uterine segment, which is where most C-sections are done. Um, a, a patient can always, you know, ask to get their prior operative report in order to be able to find out what type of C-section they had. Um, it's more likely that it was a classical cesarean section if it was a C-section that was preterm. So, for example, somebody who delivers between, you know, 24 to 28 weeks, those are often classical cesarean sections. A patient like that has a very, very high risk uh, if they were to, to try to undergo uh, labor, and so it's, it's considered you know, a contraindication. Along those lines, if somebody had a prior, what we call a T incision, where even if the initial cut was in the lower uterine segment but then extended up into the, to the higher part on the uterus, that would also be considered a higher risk. Um, certainly if they've had a prior uterine rupture, so somebody who had labor but their uterus actually tore open at any part in the uterus. Um, if they had a fibroid removed, so what's called a myomectomy, where there was an incision made, again, higher up on the uterus. Um, any other contraindications to just vaginal delivery itself, such as a placenta um, abnormality, such as, such as like placenta previa, where the placenta is actually uh, in the way you know, of the baby coming out through the cervix, that would, of course, be considered a contraindication. Um, in terms of you know, pretty much almost anything else, any other risks really need to be taken into account with the, with the whole clinical picture. Um, so, so aside from those things, almost anything else a patient could still consider to, to undergo um, a trial of labor. Um, other reasons that I probably, you know, would encourage a patient to, to you know, to to really think carefully about the whole clinical situation um, because it probably reduces her chances of a successful vaginal delivery include if her prior C-sections were for an arrest of labor, either an arrest of dilation during the active phase of labor or an arrest of descent. And again, that doesn't mean that she can't undergo a TOLAC. It just increases the risk that that could happen again. Um, if she has a higher body mass index, so obesity especially greater than 40, um, if, if there's, think, if there's a, um, a risk that the baby is going to be macrosomic or very large, especially if it seems like the baby might be over four kilograms, um, if she's going post-date, so beyond her due date, um, and if it's shorter than a 19-month uh, interdelivery interval, um, the, all of those things may increase the risk or, uh, you know, it, make it more likely that she would end up needing a C-section, um, you know, uh, rather than successfully delivering vaginally. Um, that said, uh, I strongly, strongly encourage patients who are especially good candidates, so especially if they've had a prior vaginal delivery, um, a patient who never got into active labor, which I, I consider to be at six centimeters or greater, 
uh, probably never really got a chance at, at active labor, you know, if, if she was told, you know, she had an arrest of dilation at three centimeters or two centimeters, for example. I don't consider that a true arrest of labor because I, I think probably that patient, you know, was, was not in active labor. Patients who want a larger family, I really strongly encourage to uh, consider a VBAC because with each subsequent C-section, the risks for mom and the risks in the subsequent pregnancies increase. Um, and then a patient in spontaneous labor. So sometimes I'll have patients who during the um, counseling in the office during their prenatal visits, you know, decide, okay, I, you know, I think a, a repeat C-section would be better for me, but then they show up in, in active labor before their scheduled repeat C-section date. And, you know, if, if they don't have any of the true contraindications, um, and especially if they, you know, if they've, you know, already started dilating into active labor, you know, sometimes I'll encourage them to reconsider, you know, would you want to, to try now for the trial of labor? And, and often they will, you know, consider going ahead and, and giving the trial of labor a try at that point. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I think, I think that is definitely something that, you know, like you were saying, like everyone needs to have like with your provider and like following your own intuition and knowing your optic points. I love that you mentioned that because something that I didn't know was a lot of, like I didn't know what was in my op reports and it mm-hmm. was kind of shocking to see my op reports mm-hmm. and kind of see the reason why my cesarean was kind of valid in the professional, you know, eyes. So mm-hmm. I love that you encourage that. I love it. All right. So we're going to move on to our next question with Melody as her name, and she says, why do you think the pelvis too small to fit baby card is pulled out as often as a reason to why women can't be back? Isn't it pretty rare that the pelvis, you know, not mold for a baby to fit through? So uh, also a very good question. Um, So pelvimetry, which is, you know, the fancy word for measuring the dimensions of the pelvis, used to be routinely employed by obstetricians to, to try to determine and predict if a woman would be able to give birth vaginally versus needing a cesarean section. Uh, it turns out it wasn't very reproducible between physicians, and sometimes women would be given a recommendation for a cesarean section uh, who could have really, you know, potentially delivered vaginally, and vice versa, that we, you know, sometimes thought women, you know, would, would be able to deliver vaginally where then, you know, they ended up needing a C-section. Um, while evaluation of the pelvis is still important in obstetrics, I think that there's more humility now um, to recognize that often we don't know why a baby will or won't fit, you know, through a pelvis, and that it's probably often not just about size, but potentially also about positioning uh, and, and pelvic floor muscles, uh, that, there's, that there's a lot more to it than we're really um, able to evaluate. Uh, unless a patient has a known contracted pelvis, so for example, somebody with a congenitally narrowed pelvis from birth or a history of like a pelvic fracture or crush injury, like such as after a car crash, something like that, uh, we usually recommend that a patient give labor uh, a go, you know, with, with especially uh, in patients that haven't had a C-section. And, you know, from my point of view, that is similar for a patient who has had a C-section. What we do know is that a woman who has previously had a C-section for either arrest of cervical dilation, and again, I stress cervical dilation, you know, once they were in active labor, so really, you know, given a chance mm-hmm. to get into active labor, or an arrest of descent, so meaning that, the ba- that they got all the way to 10 centimeters and the baby was not, you know, coming down into the pelvis. Um, we do know that those patients have a higher chance of that happening again. Um, looking at, you know, different studies, 
Uh, there's been lots and lots of you know, meta-analysis trying to uh, observe you know, risk of that happening again. Um, women who have had a prior history of a C-section for labor dystocia have a, have a chance of vaginal delivery success potentially as low as 20% or about one in five women uh, who deliver vaginally. So, you know, certainly that increases the chance for that woman laboring but then still having a C-section. And, and I think how that number is interpreted really depends a lot on the patient. You know, for some women, they're like, well, well, heck, one in five, I mean, that, <laughs> that's still, you know, one in five chance that I wouldn't have a repeat C-section. And for other women, you know, they're like, you know, that one in five is low enough for me that especially knowing that, you know, the highest risk for morbidity is somebody who, you know, labors and then still has a C-section, I think I'd like to go ahead and just plan on having a repeat C-section. But the, the, the history of, you know, um, having had a labor dystocia as the reason for the C-section is not a true contraindication in my mind mm -hmm. to being able to labor. It just does, you know, reduce the chances of that patient having a vaginal delivery. Great. That's a great right. answer. Yeah, yeah, I love it. I kind of want to throw an in or a question, my own question, oh, if that's okay. Sure. Yeah. So, um, I kind of, so with my first baby, I got to three centimeters and was deemed failure to progress or whatever. And then mm -hmm. in my other reports, it said CPD. And so mm -hmm. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. just curious, how is that, I don't even know the right word for like what I'm wanting to say, like, is that like a true diagnosis? Is that able to be like truly diagnosed when it's yeah, when it, I didn't even like question. get a baby down there yet? <laughs> right. You know, based on what we, based on the best guidelines that we have at this point, um, you know, and our understanding about what active labor really probably means, I, I would submit to you it doesn't sound like you are in active labor. Um, and so it, it would be difficult to, to know that that was the diagnosis. You know, one of the questions that, of course, comes up for obstetricians is why, why weren't you in active labor? Why didn't, you know, was, was there a reason why, um, you know, I don't know if you were given medications to try to get you into labor or, or to augment your labor. Um, you know, sometimes it's felt that one of the reasons why women don't get into active labor might be because, you know, the baby's not coming down into the pelvis sufficiently to really get that process going. Um, mm -hmm. But it's not known is the truth, you know, and I, and I think that it's important for us to be willing to say that to patients that, you know, I don't really know why you didn't get into active labor. You know, this is our best guess is that, you know, the baby wasn't really coming down into the pelvis well. Do we know that that's because baby didn't fit or because baby was in a position where that wasn't happening or that you just really hadn't gotten into active labor yet and maybe with more time you could have? I, I don't think that we can know that. Um, and so we just kind of do the best we can with each clinical situation. I also, I, I realize um, sometimes I, I say the words like failed vaginal delivery um, and I, what I really am wanting to get away from is the idea that, that somebody fails a, tri a labor or, you know, or, or yeah. that um, vaginal yeah. delivery is a success and a C-section is a failure. So I, I want to apologize for using those words um, because those are the words that get used in the literature sometimes, and so yeah. that's what comes out of my mouth. But I, really a, a successful delivery is one in which mom and baby are health, healthy and mom is as empowered as she can be to make you know, safe decisions for, for her and her baby. And so yeah. please, please keep that in mind as I go forward with any of my, my statements because I 
I, I do not ever want to imply that I think that somebody who doesn't have a vaginal delivery is a failure. <laughs> and I, and right. I, I, you know, some of those, some, some of the women, you know, who every woman who has a baby is a superhero in my mind. So there's that. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Yes. Statistically women are more satisfied um, or what makes women satisfied with their birth experiences, whether or not they felt empowered and in control as opposed to Mm -hmm. what the outcome of the birth was. So I'm so glad Mm -hmm. that you mentioned that. I also just want to add um, when you were talking about statistics and deciding whether to TOLAC or do a repeat Mm -hmm. cesarean, um, I, I was reminded of my very first client ever, my very first doula client and was a VBAC, and she was told she had a 4% chance of success because of the VBAC calculator, and and Mm -hmm. I'm sure that you would agree with me that it's not like a be-all, end-all. But um, she was told she had a 4% chance of having a successful VBAC, and she pushed her baby out in 20 minutes. And it was like (laughs) such a cool first birth to attend as a doula, especially one, you know, specializing in VBAC. So that was really exciting for me. Um, yeah. Okay, let's go to the next question. Um, Jen asks, what specific things should OBs be doing to increase access to VBAC? And have you found yourself in any situation where hospital practice or policies prevented you from offering VBAC to your patients? So th- this is, you know, a, a helpful question to kind of maybe talk a little bit about, you know, what's the what's the risk what's the what's the background on this on this whole um seemingly controversial uh you know option for women so you know back in in 1980 the nih and acog uh, i think i mentioned endorsed the safety of uh of trial of labor for vbac and it and it quickly increased in popularity um and by 1995 52% of patients with a prior c section were actually undergoing undergoing trial of labor um that said, what we do know is that even in a, in a low-risk uh, patient who's just had one prior, you know, C-section that was in the lower uterine segment of their uterus, there is still about a 0.7% chance risk of uterine rupture, which is where the uterus actually opens where that C-section scar is on the, on the uterus. That can be extremely dangerous, uh, both for the baby and for the mom. So while it's rare, um, it, it can be devastating. Um, it can result in um, detachment of the placenta uh, from the uterus, which then would result in the baby not receiving oxygenation uh, from the amount of, you know, from, from the incident of occurrence all the way until, you know, uh, the baby hopefully is then delivered by emergency C-section. Um, so while very rare, it, it does have potentially serious consequences. And so, of course, as the number of patients who were undergoing trial of labor went up, there was an increase in uterine rupture-related uh, maternal and perinatal morbidity. Um, so that kind of started sort of like a, a little bit of a backlash, I think, against the trial of labor. Um, medical liability claims, of course, played a role. Um, a 2009 survey of obstetricians by ACOG, 91% of obstetricians responded they had at least one liability claim against them in their career. So, I mean, it's basically saying that if you're an OB, you're almost guaranteed at some point, you know, to get sued uh, in your lifetime. And that's, that's scary. You know, we're mm-hmm. trying always to do the very best that we can for our patients. Um, you know, but the more patients you take care of, you know, that there's going to be uh, outcomes that aren't always what you're, what you're working for. Um, 
of, of, patient, of uh, obstetricians who made changes to their obstetrics practice after their claims, 25% of them stopped offering trial of labor. Um, so that, yeah. that's pretty significant. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I think understanding that background just gives a little bit more compassion for, for, for why, you know, providers sometimes are fearful when they're, when they're having a conversation with patients. That said, I, I think that fear-based decisions in general are not, not the best ones, that we really mm-hmm. want to try to make uh, good decisions based on all of the outcome and safety data that we have. Um, and the truth is that uh, the vast majority of patients uh, who have had one prior C-section, you know, can actually go on to labor and have uh, healthy vaginal deliveries. Uh, to give you an example, so as of 2013, uh, you know, after, you know, sort of this backlash, um, only 20% of women with one prior C-section and 7% of women with two prior C-sections uh, underwent a trial of labor. So that's how much that dropped by. And it's estimated that if all the women who are good candidates for, uh, for VBAC underwent a trial of labor, that the cesarean section rate in women with one prior C-section could be reduced from 70%, which is what it is now, to about 25%. So that's wow. a big deal. That's a lot. That's, that's a lot of women that, that you know potentially could have healthy vaginal deliveries. Um, so this is this is a tough one. ACOG does recommend that uh, that a trial of labor um, be undertaken at a facility where there is the option for an emergent cesarean section. So that is typically deemed to include an in-house OBGYN and an in-house anesthesia. So that means somebody that's not trying to come in from home if there's mm-hmm. an emergency. It's somebody who's already in the hospital. Especially in rural areas, there's often not the coverage, uh, you know, to, to actually be able to have both of those providers in the hospital for, for every laboring woman um, who's had a prior C-section. So there, it, that, that can be difficult um, fortunately, I have always um, uh, worked at institutions that do have that criteria, so I've always been able to offer my patients uh, trial of labor, um, but I know that that's a struggle, you know, especially for obstetricians that are in uh, areas that, are, that uh, have lower, um, lower you know, population densities, so, so there's just, um, you know, not usually the coverage to, su- to support providing those, those in-house people, and that's a tough one. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that because I just got done. We're creating a training manual for local VBAC women here, and we're, like, wrapping it up, and I just finished writing, like, a three-page summary of the history of VBAC. And, like, I literally Uh called that section VBAC Lash. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. I like that term. (laughs) So whenever you were saying the backlash, I was like, no, VBAC Lash. (laughs) Um, all right so moving right along to our next question we um this is actually another one from melody and she says are there any factual basis to check uterine scar thickness via ultrasound and do you think that the VBAC success calculator that we were just talking about a minute ago should actually be used to determine success and if so, why does a woman's race affect her probability of success? And what is the actual, it's a factual basis on the calculation? Melody really does some good research. She has some excellent questions. Right? Yes, she does. <laughs> she does. <laughs> um, let me start with the uterine scar thickness. 
So as of now, uh, ACOG does not recommend uh, checking uterine scar thickness routinely um, as part of their VBAC counseling, uh, so I don't do it routinely. Um, what, what this is, uh, for those who aren't familiar with it, is that it's possible to use ultrasound to actually measure the thickness of the uterus in the lower uterine segment, which is the place that we you know, uh, typically do the C-section, um, and where you know, a, a patient who's a candidate for a trial of labor would have had a prior C-section. Um, and what, you know, there's been lots of observational studies trying to look at you know, if it's thicker in that area, is a patient less likely to then have a uterine rupture? Um, it turns out that no single value um, actually is a good enough predictor of uterine rupture uh, to be used routinely. And it, it also really matters at what point during pregnancy that um, measurement is taken because uh, as the uterus grows, the lower uterine segment does thin out, um, and that, that's a natural process during, um, during gestation. So um, studies do suggest that the thinner the lower uterine segment is uh, by ultrasound at term, the higher the risk of uterine scar rupture at delivery, but there's, there's not really enough good data there to, to use that to tell a woman, you know, no, you, you really shouldn't, uh, you know, try for labor. There are some professionals who feel that a lower uterine segment thickness of less than two millimeters puts a patient at risk for increased uterine rupture uh, or dehiscence, which is where the muscle part is gone, mm -hmm. um, but the, uh, there's like a thinner tissue that overlies the uterus called serosa, which sometimes stays intact. So as of right now, based on available data and based on national uh, you know, guidelines, I think most providers are not offering that routinely. Um, that said, every so often, um, you know, if during uh, like an anatomy ultrasound or, or during kind of routine prenatal care, if it's noticed even very early that there's a very thin part of the lower uterine segment, um, it, it can come up in conversation as to, as to whether or not that should be factored into a woman's overall decision as to whether or not to undergo a trial of labor. Um, okay. In terms of VBAC calculators, so... Uh, importantly, uh, there's been, you know, there's no prediction, there's no one prediction model for VBAC that's been shown to actually result in improved patient outcomes. Um, I, I, Julie, I can't, I, I can't remember if it was Julie or Megan, which one of you just, you know, brought up the uh, patient who had been told she has a 4% chance of successful mm -hmm. vaginal delivery who then went on to absolutely deliver vaginally. And, yeah, and so, then, you know, I, I think that that speaks to, to why that is, that, you know, we can mm -hmm. give a, a percent chance for, you know, how likely it is we think something's going to happen, but then, you know, this is, this is the human body. It's, it's not, you know, a math project or uh, a card game, you know, that statistics are only going to do so much. So I think that um, while the VBAT calculator can be useful in terms of um, getting a feel for if you're, you know, a, a particularly good candidate or not, um, it shouldn't be the end-all, be-all. Um, the VBAC calculators tend to be best at uh, the extremes. So they, they tend to give the most helpful information if it's somebody who, for example, has had a prior vaginal delivery or a prior uh, successful uh, VBAC, it's going to give a very high percent mm -hmm. chance of success. And that person has a very high percent chance of success. And conversely, if it's somebody who, for example, has had two prior cesarean sections for a labor dystocia, 
it's going to give a, a pretty low chance of success. And in general, those patients have a higher, you know, need for C-section. Um, you know, there's some guidance, you know, if, if, if a VBAC calculator is used during counseling that potentially using kind of like a 60 to 70% chance of success as a threshold um, for women to kind of decide whether or not they would want a repeat elective C-section versus uh, a trial of labor, that that could be a helpful threshold. I, you know, what that's basically saying is that, because so in this country at a lot of hospitals, a first-time mom's chance of C-section is somewhere around 20 to 30 percent. So that's, mm -hmm. that's basically saying, okay, <laughs> if you have a lower chance of a vaginal delivery than you did to start with, you're going to have still a lower chance of vaginal delivery in this C-section, or sorry, in this labor too. Did, did that make sense? Mm -hmm. um, let me try to phrase that a different way. I, I think the reason that that 60 to 70% threshold gets used is in an effort to try to help women avoid being somebody who has to undergo a trial of labor and then still have a C-section, because like we talked about at the beginning, that has the highest, you know, kind of morbidity to mom and baby. Um, but, but I think the take-home message is that it should be used as, you know, guidance and food for thought rather than definitive, you know, yes or no, you can or can't do this. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that I would add is there are some VBAC calculators that take into account what is going on for a patient at presentation of labor. And that makes a huge difference. I, I think I stressed this earlier in our conversation, but a woman who shows up in active labor, her you know, likelihood for a successful vaginal delivery it, it is so much greater than it would be if she didn't show up in active labor that often I'll, I'll encourage my patients when we have the counseling conversation during prenatal care to be as open-minded as possible going towards the end of their pregnancy and to kind of see, you know, kind of take some cues from their body to see what, what their body does. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if that was clear enough. I, hopefully I didn't uh, leave Melody unsatisfied with, with that answer. But, um, <laughs> it was a great answer. I, I like it. <laughs> And I and I agree with you 100%. Like I, I kind of um, give the VBAC calculator a hard time because a lot of women will hear a number and just feel completely mm -hmm. defeated. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, anyway. Oh, and the, you know what? I didn't. Oh. I failed to uh, address the last part of her uh, question, which I think is very interesting. So. Oh yeah. Regarding basis. race and and factual oh. basis for the calculation. Yeah. So I ju let me just. Uh, so one example of a calculator um, is that. Uh, um, MFMU network calculator, um, and it's meant for, you know, entry to prenatal care, so not taking into account uh, what's happening at the time of labor. Um, and the way that they came up with these numbers was they used a study population of 11,850 women, 73% um, of whom, you know, ultimately delivered vaginally. So it's all just observational data, okay? None of this is, um, you know, kind of like the gold standard of, of what, science considers to be, uh, you know, kind of like a randomized prospective trial. None of, none of that uh, is, is here. This is just observational. So the truth is we can't say why it is that, that labor, or sorry, that race appears to have uh, an impact on the probability of success. 
Uh, we do know that race appears to be an independent variable. So even if we control for, you know, body mass index, for socioeconomics, for uh, comorbidities such as diabetes and, and you know, smoking, that, that race does appear to impact the probability of success in these observational models, but it's, it's really not un well understood why. Um, so one example, there's, there was a large meta-analysis of patients who underwent trial of labor, and it demonstrated that African-American women had a slightly lower overall rate of successful uh, vaginal delivery um, after uh, trial of labor, but they also had a lower rate of uterine rupture, and, and we, we don't know why. Um, possible explanations for these disparities range from inherent genetic and anatomic differences uh, to differences in fetal parameters, such as weight, um, there's potentially disparities in, in how these patients are counseled, maybe management um, and, you know, clinical decision-making, access to health care and acceptance of, of care plans. It's really difficult to say what is going into this, but all we can really say is that observationally there seems to be a difference here. Um, it, on a side note, it's sort of a hot topic in medicine uh, and especially in obstetrics that it, it seems like our outcomes for African-American women are worse you know, across the board, even accounting for, you know, comorbidity, socioeconomics, um, and access to care, which it's very sobering, and it really, you know, begs the question, why? What, what is happening mm -hmm. from a lifetime perspective for these patients that we are um, failing to take into account and, and failing to care for them in that way? Awesome. Awesome. Very good answer. Holy cow. <laughs> I just love how like in depth you are willing to go too. Like it's just oh, it's awesome. Yeah. Um, we have one from. This is another one from Bethany. <laughs> <laughs> and um, but I know that lots of other women um have kind of asked the same question, and you know, Julie and I are part of a lot of forums and VBAC forums, and I think that we see this question kind of go around all the time. Um, mm -hmm. And it is, do you think that unmedicated tolax are more likely mm -hmm. to result in a vaginal birth? What do you think? What's your take on this? Uh, this is a good question, and for which I, I don't have good data to guide my answer. Um, I, you know, I think that even the debate over, um, you know, epidurals and successful vaginal birth even outside of a prior cesarean section um, is, is always hotly debated, and we don't have any evidence to suggest that, that uh, epidurals actually reduce, um, I'm assuming unmedicated here refers to epidurals. I know there's other mm -hmm. forms of medication, um, you know, but I think those are usually not considered to be impacting, uh, you know, uh, su uh, vaginal success. Um, I, I do think especially when somebody is, you know, in that early labor and transitioning into active labor, that movement, it, it, you know, and this is more my gut here, so we're, we're coming off of, you know, hard, hard evidence and onto just, you know, my clinical uh, experience, which is that movement and the ability for mom and baby to kind of do that dance together, to, to, for baby to really get into a good as good of a position as possible heading into the pelvis, um, I, I think that the ability to move around is, is useful. Um, mm -hmm. And, and uh, I tend to encourage my patients. That said, I also uh, don't discourage a patient who, who wants pain relief. I, I think that... Um, it, certainly, 
I don't have any data to point to to say that she doesn't have every chance for a successful vaginal delivery as somebody without an epidural. Um, so, you know, it, it, I, I really try to go by what the patient is telling me and asking me. Um, in terms of, I, I know that there was another question on here that kind of uh, went along the lines of like, do, do you have to get an epidural? I, 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 do not, I do not tell my parents, my patients, they have to get an epidural. Um, and ACOG mm. doesn't, you know, recommend that they have to get an epidural. I think that there is, you know, some, there are some providers who feel like, oh, well, if there's the epidural in place, then that could be used quickly to try to give uh, you know, sufficient pain control for an emergency C-section. And my experience has been in the very care, in the very rare case of uterine rupture that unfortunately it's, it's uh, very unlikely that that could even be um, used quickly enough. It takes about 20 minutes for the medication that goes into an epidural to uh-huh. give enough pain control for a C-section because they're totally different levels of, of pain, you know, coverage. Mm-hmm. Um, and so most of the time a patient actually is, needs to go to sleep anyway in order to, to safely do an emergency section in the case of a uterine, in a suspected uterine rupture. So I, you know, I don't actually find that reason super compelling. Um, I do uh, support ACOG's recommendation for monitoring um, during labor um, because one of the earliest signs that we get um, for uterine rupture is often um, fetal heart rate tracing uh, abnormalities. And so, uh, but, but that, that can almost always be done, you know, even with an unmedicated birth, you know, that, that there's monitors that uh, don't require the patient to be in the bed uh, so she can be moving around. So. Right. Right, and kind of, so I'm going to kind of lead right into this next question. Um, and it talks about... Um, and you kind of talked about it earlier, like, you know, uh, a woman that comes in into active labor, you mm-hmm. know, her chances are maybe a little higher. And so um, Michelle asks, should someone that's been told that she has a thin uterus or maybe excessive scar tissue consider laboring at home for that early labor stage, um, or would it be better for her to be under that hospital um, supervision mm-hmm. being mm-hmm. monitored? And... Um, you know, if the hospital is the best place, how can she, she's asking, you know, how can we be, mon- how can we, like, use monitoring to increase mm-hmm. safety while still respecting the chance to be back and not just kind of mm-hmm. jump into mm-hmm. that cesarean? Um, yeah, th- this is, I mean, it really, uh, it, Michelle puts her finger on on a difficult, um, you know, topic in obstetrics. So, um, in terms of, of laboring at home for early labor with a history of C-section, um, while we, you know, on, on one hand, you do want to give yourself a, a chance to get into active labor. On the other hand, you want to balance that with, with potential risk. So I, mm-hmm. I don't usually encourage my patients to stay home once their contractions have become very strong, um, so strong that they're, changing, they're actively changing their cervix. Um, I usually recommend for them to come to the hospital for monitoring at that point. Um, Michelle's right. Uh, continuous monitoring, we know, uh, increases the chance for C-section. Um, it is a goal of all obstetricians to not uh, unnecessarily give a C-section based on fetal heart rate monitor readings. 
Uh, but the fetal heart rate monitor is not perfect. It is, mm -hmm. uh, it is um, an, Im an imprecise tool. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think yeah. we're just all doing the best we can to uh, make good decisions based on information that we have from the fetal heart rate monitor um, and really uh, still create, you know, the space for laboring. Um, but, uh, but of course, the goal is healthy mom and healthy baby. So if there's concern on the fetal heart rate tracing, you know, then, then I think that that has to be taken into account, you know, for the decision as to whether or not to go forward with, with laboring. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Okay, and then we also have a question from Kathy, and she, and this is another one that I see kind of bounce around on those birth forums all the time, um, and it, it's to do with, you know, how long after a cesarean do you suggest women wait before then trying to have a TOLAC? Um, mm -hmm. She says, do you think 18 months between a cesarean is long enough? Um, you know, I don't know. Tell us what you think. <laughs> so there, um, there is some data to suggest maybe slightly increased risk for rupture for interpregnancy interval less than between 18 to 24 months. ACOG recommends, um, you know, that ideally somebody would have greater than 19 months, you know, between their, their inner delivery interval. Um, that said, I think, again, the entire clinical context is super important. I mean, I've had patients who, you know, have had uh, prior vaginal delivery and have had very short pregnancy intervals uh, come to me uh, wanting to do a TOLAC, and, you know, especially because they are, um, you know, such good candidates with the prior vaginal delivery. We talk about the slightly, you know, increased risk for, for uterine rupture. They understand that risk, and they, and they decide to proceed uh, anyway. So I, I think that the whole clinical picture really matters, and um, you know, if, especially if Kathy doesn't have you know other uh, risk factors, um, that you know, 18 months is, is certainly a reasonable time to consider uh, having uh, a trial of labor, uh, just with the knowledge that potentially there's a slightly higher risk uh, for uterine rupture. So something else that gets talked about a lot, and it's kind of a controversial topic, is Induction of VBAC. I know there's like methods and things like that that are maybe a little more discouraged for use than others, and we see and hear and get asked a lot about that. So, um, do you want to go ahead and touch on that as far as VBAC and induction and what may or may not be a good idea to use to induce a VBAC woman? Sure thing. So, um, I, I think, you know, we've already talked about that. Certainly, um, give, giving yourself the time to get into spontaneous labor, if possible, is, you know, definitely uh, gives them the greatest chance of a successful vaginal delivery. Um, that said, sometimes that's not an option, you know, that, that really the recommendation, you know, for, uh, for whatever reason is that uh, it's best to undergo an induction. Um, if the cervix is not favorable, so meaning um, we, we kind of use these words favorable, right? Um, basically, I, I, the cervix is this incredible organ that has to go from being a steel trap, you know, steel door to, to being this like giant garage door, right? Like it's yes. like we're asking, <laughs> we're asking this, this unbelievable transformation. So the first part of that transformation is for the cervix to uh, start to get, you know, softer, thinner, um, and, uh, and start to dilate slightly. Uh, that's called cervical ripening. Mm -hmm. That process is mostly chemical. So unlike uh, labor, where we think it's more of like a, um, 
uh, you know, like a mechanical, like where the strong contractions are actually opening uh, the, the cervix, we think that uh, that cervical ripening is more of um, like the, uh, a body's uh, chemical signaling to each other, like, oh, oh, okay, we're getting ready, we're getting ready, yeah, let's get ready. And that, and that mm-hmm. can happen over weeks leading up to a patient's labor. Um, and so that is what we're trying to artificially do in a much shorter period of time when we induce a patient. Uh, what we do know is that uh, any type of exogenous medication um, for a woman who's had a C-section in the past does increase her risk for uterine rupture. It's just to the degree in which it does so. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, oxytocin um, probably increases the risk of uterine rupture. You know, I, I usually quote to my patients that it about doubles it. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, from about, you know, 0.7 to somewhere between 1.1 to 1.4%. Um, and that's still considered an acceptable risk, you know, if, if the patient is willing to, to accept that and, and go mm-hmm. forward. Um, but oxytocin is not the best way to actually ripen a cervix. That's usually only used if a patient has um, already made it into active labor. For ripening a cervix, we have two options uh, for a patient without a C-section. One is uh, a prostaglandin type of in- induction, and, and so there's a number of different types of prostaglandins, the most well-known being Cytotec or Misoprostol, which is the same thing, and Cervidil. And those, I think there, were, there was a question that specifically mentioned Cervidil. Right. Um, to, to the best of our knowledge, prostaglandins appear to increase uterine rupture risk to as high as about, you know, two and a half percent. So it starts to, to really, um, you know, increase the risk potentially unacceptably. So usually what we'll end up recommending is something called a uh, ripening balloon, uh, so either a Foley balloon or a Cook balloon, those are the two most yeah. common types, and those can be placed in the cervix to kind of create pressure on the cervix, and that allows for the body's natural prostaglandins to release on its own um, and, and help ripen the cervix. Mm-hmm. So that's, there, there's not um, really good data on it, um, but what data we have does not suggest there's an increased risk of rupture. Uh, so that's typically considered to be the safest method for induction for uh, a TOLAC. That said, I do really encourage my patients to take into account their entire clinical picture. So if they are somebody for whom they have other, you know, reasons why they have a higher risk um, for ultimately needing a C-section, if they're then on top of that, ultimate, you know, ending up needing an induction and the cervix is very unfavorable, I kind of usually, you know, readdress the conversation just to kind of, you know, see, see where they're at and kind of get, their, get their, their gut feeling on everything. So. Ah, absolutely. I thought. <laughs> no, that's <laughs> To make sure they understand um, that increased risk is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's really important. One thing um, that I really like, kind of like a common theme um, throughout this interview, is that you you talk a lot about, you know, okay, so this is what, like, the data says. And I am, like, a total data junkie. So, like, I'm, like, the spreadsheet. <laughs> what do the stats say? Like, I love that stuff. I totally geek out. But at the same time, like, there is the personal factor, too. And I feel mm-hmm. like um, coupling that, inform- like, the inf- all the information you can learn, your your statistics and the data and the history generally, and then couple that what you know about 
yourself and your experiences and then and then with your intuition you and your care provider can make the best decision for your birth and no matter what that ends up looking like um, mm-hmm. I want to um, just kind of reinforce to everybody that you know sometimes or a lot of times VBAC is a good option but for whatever reason you may not be able to have a VBAC and you may not want to have a VBAC and it is mm-hmm. perfectly okay choosing to mm-hmm. have a repeat C-section if that's what's right for you physically or mentally and mm-hmm. I just want to refer people back we had um, on episode 12 um, Haley talked a lot about her VBAC journey and how it just wasn't very good for her um, a mm-hmm. lot of it uh, was based on her provider choice and she had some things there. So it's a great episode. So if anybody wants to go back and hear that story and maybe um, get further impressed about why finding the right provider in hospital is, is good on your birth journey, I definitely suggest going back to listen to that. We also have a summary of questions and things to talk to your provider about to determine whether they fit in line with your birth goals and what your birth vision is, no matter what it looks like. Because a provider that's going to be good for a C-section birth might not be the same provider that's going to be good for a vaginal birth and same thing as unmedicated or versus unmedicated and it's really important to find someone to fit with what your medical and emotional needs are. So if you uh, have a chance, go back, listen to episode 12 um, and check out the blog utahvbacklink.com slash blog, just search for provider and that blog's going to pop right up for you. Um, We are so grateful that Dr. Cormano took time out of her busy day. You guys, you know like obstetricians life is crazy, right? They've got all these scheduled things, they're doing all sorts of of surgeries and care and everything like that outside of delivering babies and we're just so grateful that she was able to take the time to spend with us today. So thank you again so much. Megan had to um, take off really quickly but um, I know she's incredibly grateful for you as well. So thank you for spending time with us today. And thank you all of our listeners for all the questions that you asked. Like really, they were some great ones. <laughs> it, was a, it was a real pleasure. And uh, thank you, Julie, for having me on. And uh, good luck to everyone listening. Um, may your birth experience be the one that is right for you. And uh, may you have a healthy baby and, uh, and be healthy as well. We are always looking for more inspiring stories. To share your story or possibly be on one of our podcasts, post on social media with the hashtag #WhyWeVBack and tag at the VBAC link or contact us from our website. Be sure to rate us and share and leave your reviews. We are excited to hear what you think. For families local to Utah, be sure to check out our website, utahvbacklink.com, for more information on our VBAC childbirth classes and doula services. Thank you so much for listening. We are excited for you to begin your journey with us.